When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do we price the protest in China? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Tavi Costa, Partner and Portfolio Manager at Crestcat Capital. Hi, Tavi. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, interesting start to the week. We have U.S. stocks, which just closed, down, bond yields, and the dollar up on what seemed like a whole host of concerns. We heard hawkish comments from a couple of Federal Reserve officials, BlockFi, another crypto firm filed for bankruptcy. And of course, these reports of protests in China all seem like they combine to sort of weigh on sentiment today, kind of creating this risk off environment. What's top of mind for you as we kick off this week? Well, look, it's been top of my mind, at least, to be looking at the, what what is likely to be the roadmap for this market, which is mostly of uh, the darlings of this prior cycle are all retesting the COVID lows. And you can look at Chinese stocks, you can look at some software stocks, you can see ARK investments, they're all retesting the COVID 2020 or the March 2020 lows already, even Amazon, Netflix, Facebook. Um, and there are other parts of the market are yet to, in my opinion, retest those, uh, those lows. And there's a significant downside from here, in my opinion. So when you have markets right mm. now, um, showing a relief rally that we had in the last uh, weeks or so. Um, I think it's, um, in my opinion, when you have uh, those situations, I think you want to systematically increase uh, your short exposure as the market uh, moves higher. And now it looks to me, um, I don't have a crystal ball, but certainly looks like it's a first day down uh, for most markets, especially this was a very broad sell-off. Um, you look at the equal weighted index uh, in S&P was down over 2% today. Um, and so it, it's it's really not driven by uh, one or two sectors. And the other thing I would like to comment is the mega cap side. The mega cap uh, stocks have been underperforming the overall market. And today was another example of that, Apple being one of them. Uh, but really across the board, when you look at uh, other companies that are in this mega cap realm, are certainly under tremendous pressure right now. So I think that's the beginning of a trend on the end of one, uh, and probably we're likely to see that leading the way to the downside. Wow. So so that, it sounds like you're pretty bearish. I, I want to sort of kind of methodically walk through some of it because there's a lot of threads in there. And um, let's start with China. That's, uh, that's just because of the news we're seeing. I mean, certainly everyone kind of walking into the U.S. session today, um, looking at the reports of protests. Again, really hard to know exactly what's going on just because of the limited coverage. And even the journalists that are there are really, you know, constrained in their ability to move around and report. But clearly, you know, there seems to be some element of of frustration and social unrest and just people fed up with the zero COVID policy. A lot of concerns about supply chains uh, filtering into that. What's your sense of where we are with China in terms of the economy? I mean, is this going to sort of further complicate an already cloudy picture? 
I sent to you uh, a chart with a uh, title of banking asset growth, uh, which shows, I think it's probably one of the last charts I sent you an email, uh, which basically shows the growth of Chinese banking assets uh, over time, all the way back to the global financial crisis that completely dwarfs uh, anything that we've seen in other uh, more developed economies. And it's been our view that uh, China is is facing a real credit imbalance, perhaps one of the largest we've seen in history. Um, and I think China is much closer to an economic implosion than uh, winning a hegemonic war uh, against the U.S. and other Western nations in general. So, uh, and this is uh, also uh, why I think it's so relevant from uh, a global perspective, just because of uh, the deglobalization uh, trends that will likely intensify as we see this. But the protests politically is something um, that we haven't seen um, since the early 90s. And interestingly, is is really this situation is not really uh, against the CCP, but really against uh, the Xi Jinping from my read and from our um, domestic uh, uh, context that we have in China. Um, it's interesting that some of the leakage of the videos, uh, initially, I think everybody thought that those uh, those videos were all intentionally leaked uh, by the CCP. And, and now I think we're seeing from my understanding, again, from my context that I have there, uh, that certainly those are, are real problems that are unfolding in China. The difference here is that back in the early 90s, there was uh, a strong sense of who was going to be the next leader of the party. Uh, and uh, today, I don't think we have that at all. So that is a little questionable from a sense of when you know you have a credit imbalance in a monetary crisis uh, unfolding. Uh, and how do we know that? Well, just look at the, the foreign reserves of China that have been declining over time. And a lot of people like to look at that as China having the upper hand of being able to sell treasuries when it's really the other way around is China is running out of dollars uh, in this case. And so in my opinion, um, I think the big question here is, is how is uh, Xi Jinping going to try to reestablish its uh, uh, its credibility in terms of its leadership, and so um, that could come in through nationalism. You know, Taiwan could be in a target here. Um, that could be come in through a Tiananmen Square uh, type of event, uh, similar to what we saw in the early uh, '90s. But remember, back in the '90s as well, we had to restructure uh, the Chinese banks, which is a little bit similar to what we have today given the fact there's so many non-performing loans uh, in, in, in banking assets uh, of China and Hong Kong as well. And given that, uh, back in 93, 94, we've had a, a devaluation of the Chinese one of 33% on one day. I think that that's sort of uh, a black swan event that not a lot of people were uh, really uh, positioned for. That's the definition of a black swan. Mm. Um, and so we are, we're short the Chinese one, we've been short uh, one of the longest hedge funds that actually been betting against that. It's been a, a long uh, ride for us and it worked a few years. It didn't work other years. And I think if there was ever a time to be short the Hong Kong dollar, the time is today. Yeah, it's, it, it's so fascinating, Tavi, because we, you know, China is so important to the global economy. We know what happened when we're talking about the supply chains. So I think it's really important, this risk that you're pointing out. And um, for those who are members of Real Vision, you know that we've been watching China very closely. It was part of our Make or Break series. Um, I encourage you to go back and listen to the interview that I did with Victor Shi, He's an associate professor at UC San Diego. And I want to play a little clip of that because, you know, trying to figure out how 
to navigate through both the economic challenges they face and how to get out of this zero COVID policy or do they get out of it has been a real concern for many of the China experts we talked to, including Victor. And he really laid out what are a series or scenarios, um, all of which are highly problematic. Let's have a listen to part of that conversation. Right now, the big connection is Hong Kong. I mean, despite everything, Hong Kong continues to be a major bridge between the Chinese financial system and the global one. They can always shut it down. And if they shut it down, then um, then it's fine. I mean, basically, you know, people just can't take money out of China at all. Um, and yeah, and then they will do this thing where they limit the number of students who can travel overseas, the number of tourists who can travel overseas, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we hope it doesn't get to that point. You know, obviously we, we like having our students from China, you know, coming, studying with us and paying tuition, mm -hmm. et cetera, but uh, it could come to that, um, you know, if the outflows are too, because I think the, the alternative, which is kind of a clean float and, you know, open up the capital account, the cost of that is just too high for China because basically you will have this kind of 30 plus percent depreciation overnight. Um, and then the problem with that is uh, the dollar value of China's economy also shrinks by 30%. And China will never catch up with the United States, which for Xi Jinping, that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think for him, he would, he would rather have kind of a closed system that he can claim is like, oh, but we're getting more powerful, we're getting richer, even though the accounting of it is very suspect because, you know, it's completely closed loop. And that full interview is available to members on our website. If you want to get access to it, uh, go ahead and, and head over to our website. Sometimes you have a QR code up too. Um, I don't know if we have that up today, but um, easy to find. Tavi, the, the, exactly what you were talking about, this strikes me as uh, you know, both of those scenarios very difficult, but the idea of a devaluation or or the Hong Kong dollar losing its peg. I mean, talk to me about what that would mean for the global economy. These seem like huge events, and if they're not being priced in, why aren't they being priced in? Well, I think it's a little bit of hubris from my end to be, you know, looking to short the Hong Kong dollar, knowing how many decades it's been pegged against the dollar here. Um, but it's, you know, if you look at the fundamentals of a currency, there's a a good paper uh, that that refers to uh, basically all the fundamentals and metrics you should be looking at to short a currency. And essentially, uh, you know, there's a kind of a, a checklist of things that you should be watching for, regardless if it is uh, the FX reserves declining, FX reserves relative to uh, money supply, uh, the banking assets growth, and then look at the banking assets relative to GDP. Um, all those things in China and Hong Kong actually check uh, in terms of the risk for uh, devaluation of those currencies. Um, it's been of our view as well that um, it's difficult to uh, to express that opinion in markets. Um, in the Hong Kong dollar, it's fairly easy. Uh, and throughout, throughout history, when you look at other times when we've had uh, big monetary crises in other countries and other uh, monetary systems in the past, uh, what actually happens is uh, most of the times uh, you, you may see a collapse in equity markets alongside with a uh, collapse of the currency versus the dollar. But uh, the usual pattern is that you tend to see gold 
uh, prices in local currency terms to rise. So it's tangible assets relative to um, the local currency that tends to uh, be repriced at much higher levels. And so uh, I think that that's sort of what's going on here. And if you think about the history of China itself, um, there are many, uh, in the last century, uh, China had to reset its monetary system uh, about nine times. Uh, in other words, uh, literally their currency went to zero and they had to reset the monetary system with, with a new currency. Um, and so China does have a history of uh, having issues uh, like what we have uh, currently. And so, which makes me believe that um, I don't think this is fully priced in. Um, yeah. the, the CNH uh, volatility, implied volatility is a little higher than used to be, um, call it, you know, three years ago. Um, now the Hong Kong dollar implied vol is still very, very low, which allows a fund like, like ours uh, to uh, to have a significant exposure to uh, uh, short uh, the, the the Hong Kong dollar uh, relative to the, to the U.S. dollar um, over time uh, without actually having to risk a lot of premium. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, very, very interesting. And again, you know, I, I just think it's important to sort of put this on everyone's radar. You know, I think Tavi, I don't think anyone's saying this is happening tomorrow, but these are the, uh, all of you I know look at the probability, you know, and the, and the risks that you have to be aware of um, and trying to sort of figure out, you know, maybe what's not being paid enough attention to. And so I'm, I think it was really important to kind of start that conversation. We asked the question, how do you price this crisis? I don't know if any of us know, Tavi, but you would be looking at the Hong Kong dollar as, as sort of an interesting aspect to watch, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, and we've been in that trade for a while. So I don't want to say um, that I have a necessarily an edge on when it's going to happen. I do mm -hmm. think it's it's very important sort of an insurance policy in our portfolio uh, to have that exposure. Um, if, if that happens to your initial question, that would be a risk off uh, scenario. That would that would be a shock to the world. Yeah. That would likely be a shock to equity markets in the US. Um, and I don't think that would be actually perceived as, as positive uh, for the global economy in general, because yeah. usually uh, a large collapse of a currency uh, tends to also precede other political changes in an environment like that. And you know how authoritarian and, and communist uh, China really is. And, and, you know, who knows who could be the, the next leader. And, and those are the big questions that we don't have uh, answers for because there's not really a well-defined, uh, you know, next leadership in place at all. And, and yeah. we know the pressure is, is severe uh, and with uh, Xi Jinping today uh, to actually leave, uh, uh, you know, his, uh, his role uh, as, uh, as, as the leader of the, of the party. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm so glad it was worth taking the time to talk about this. Well, you have this general sense of unease. This is why. I mean, these are big, very big, very risky problems. We're going to have to see how it plays out, but it's really worth putting on everyone's radar. So thank you for that. And by the way, Fred Croft is asking a question. I'm going to just say, Fred, I'm going to refer you to both Victor and George Magnus's interviews we did in that series. He's asking about Beijing's attempt to shift liability to the regions. 
um, in terms of the real estate situation. Both of those guests talked about that as an, another underappreciated risk, the idea that there's uh, you know, that the the money transfers from the central government aren't happening in the way they were before. So there's sort of financing issues that are going to create even more tension in in some of those peripheral cities, not the big ones, but the, the sort of mid-sized to smaller cities. Very, very interesting conversation. So, um, Fred, you can go um, maybe find find some more information in both of those interviews on that on that issue. OK, so let's move it back here, Tavi. Uh, I mentioned Fed governors out banging the hawkish drum again, saying higher rates are going to be needed. Clearly keep trying to walk the market back from, you know, looking for any kind of sign of a pause. What are you watching in terms of the Federal Reserve? We're going to have Jay Powell speaking on Wednesday. Well, look, I think it's a lot of uh, attention on. Uh, the rate changes and the, the sort of potential for a pivotal moment on how interest rates uh, will be in terms of terminal rates and Fed funds uh, rates in, in, in the next month or so. Uh, and if we're going to see a, a change from 75 to 50 and, 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 and from there what happens, and that could potentially be um, people saying that that could potentially be positive for equity markets. But in my opinion, what is even more relevant is what's happening on the balance sheet. Um, the balance sheet size, number one, um, you know, when we look at the, the size of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve today, it is uh, completely uh, overstated. Uh, and that is because uh, when you calculate on a mark-to-market basis, accounting uh, technicality here, um, the decline in, in prices of the Treasury market uh, is has been severe. It is probably about one uh, 0.3 to 1.5 trillion dollars uh, that is is actually mismarked uh, in in the balance sheet as of today. So the tightening of or the depletion of the reserves from the Federal Reserve uh, is actually being larger than what's been reported. Um, mm. The second thing is the rate of change of uh, of of the the uh, this uh, depletion as well, which you can look at that on a weekly basis, uh, which is reported I think every Thursday uh, afternoon. Um, and you can see that right now they're selling somewhere close to $40 billion a week. Um, and, and that is severe. $40 billion of quantitative tightening uh, is something we have never seen in the past. Uh, that is despite all uh, the weakness that we see in the macro data, uh, which is something I've been covering very closely. Uh, we have the, the federal uh, uh, Dallas uh, manufacturing index uh, that came out today, for instance, new orders to collapse today to levels that we only seen in lockdowns and global financial crisis. And people need to be paying attention to those uh, those examples because those uh, analogs were times when the Federal Reserve actually uh, had uh, completely changed and actually provided uh, a significant amount of, um, of uh, uh, or, or relief uh, for markets uh, by providing support, uh, by either doubling the size of the balance sheet, dropping rates to zero, quite the opposite than what we have today. The rate of change of of the balance sheet itself is actually uh, getting increasing in, in terms of of the decline of, of of their assets, and so I think that that's that's a very uh, important uh, point to be made, which is related to liquidity. And I think liquidity is getting um, it, it's about to change significantly. One thing is to take interest rates to four percent. When you go above that, uh, you start seeing some uh, some real signs of weakness in in global in the global economy, and I think we're about to see that. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people have been looking at the yield curve being inverted as a sign that, you know, recession's coming. I know you have a chart of these yield cur curve inversions that you sent over. You know, what are you anticipating for the economy? Is it going to be a severe recession? What do you see happening? 
Well, Maggie, I think that's a very uh, important debate in the macro community and a healthy debate of is this a mid-cycle sort of uh, uh, pause or are we seeing uh, the beginning of a steeper recession? Um, and I, I like to uh, use some of my best indicators which uh, to answer that question, which is what you just said is the uh, percentage of yield curve inversions. I think there's a lot of uh, smart uh, smart people uh, looking at uh, yield spreads out there, the 10-year versus the three-month yield, 10-year yield versus two-year yields. And once those invert, uh, they, they tend to tell you similar signals that you are about to see uh, a contraction of, of, of growth. Um, and this percentage of inversions is just a much more comprehensive way of analyzing the entire treasury curve where you're really looking at all possible spreads of the treasury curve uh, between the th 30 years all the way to uh, uh, to, to overnight rates. Uh, and you make all the combinations that you can, which is I think is about 45, uh, and you calculate how many of those are actually inverted. And empirically, as you can see in the chart, uh, every time we go above 70% of that, uh, of the measurement, uh, we've it, it coincided with the recession. Um, and then I went a little deeper on that thought because I wanted to know what does it mean to a portfolio? Uh, how do you position when you have that 70% of inversions? Um, and what it means is that you want to own gold and sell stocks. It's the gold to S&P 500 ratio. There are times where that ratio is really driven by gold prices rising, and there are times that it's really driven by a collapse of equity markets where gold hold its, holds its, its ground relative to risky assets. Um, and, and there are times as well when you have the two parts of this trade working, in other words, gold rising along with equity markets declining. I think uh, this is sort of the playbook that we have currently. Mm. When I look at the commodity space and I see you know, energy has played a very big role in the last one or two years, uh, two back-to-back -back incredible performances, and I think about owning baskets of, of commodities in general in our portfolio because that's what we believe. We think we're entering an inflationary era. Uh, I think the precious metals is going to actually lead the way right now uh, in this commodity side of our portfolio. And that's mostly driven by this weakness in global economy uh, and really because of this yield curve inversion uh, signal that is provided uh, by this research. And so I'm very focused. I think the, the mining sector uh, mining companies um, and most of uh, precious metals in general can actually lead the way to the upside relative to other commodities, which has been lagging other commodities, especially the cyclical ones. Mm. And, and I think that's going to be an interesting setup. That is an interesting setup. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Bo uh, is asking about how do you feel about inflation, uh, saying I'm most concerned with food inflation, bad growing seasons, diesel, fertilizer. China's massive imports, but you're looking at higher inflation across the board. Are you in the camp that believes we're in an elevated period of inflation? Well, look, I, I think we're entering an inflationary era. That doesn't mm. mean we're not. We, we could see a, a wave. Uh, I think it's going to develop in waves of inflations, uh, where you know, similar to the '70s, we've had three waves. Uh, and and if you look at the CPI rates, it did higher lows in those in that measurement. So. 
have we seen the first wave? You know, probably. I think markets are already pricing in the probability that we've seen that. Mm. Um, so that's you know that's one thing to uh, uh, to uh, to be looking at. But I, I don't think you know. You, I think you have to look at what are the causes of this inflationary problem. And I call it the pillars of inflation because I think they're uh, very relevant to uh, to this discussion. Uh, number one, it's the wages and salaries growth, which uh, usually are secular moves. And uh, I think we're at the very beginning of that uh, that shift uh, and similar to how we saw back in the 70s. Uh, secondly, I think it has to do with natural resources in general. Um, I, I was one of the few people that actually put those charts of CapEx of most natural resources three years ago um, really looking at capex for energy companies, capex for most of the mining companies, and seeing that those cycles are very clear. When you hit those lows historically, especially adjusted for GDP levels, uh, usually uh, that tends to cause a shortage of, of raw materials is in general. And so I think we're in that position yet. We are not. The tightening of monetary conditions is only making this, uh, this problem worse. I mean, I, I invest in a lot of mining companies. I can see firsthand how much those companies are suffering uh, to actually attract liquidity uh, so they can uh, invest in new projects of exploration. Yeah, and that's the thing. Production. It's not overnight. Claire, Claire um, and folks, if you, I, I think we have an S&P 500 metals and mining index that Tavi sent over, and you can really see the, yeah. you know, the chart and the fact that you kind of feel like it's at sitting at one of those bottoms, right? That it's... Uh, yeah. We've been we've been getting a lot of questions about that, but do you feel like it's a it's going to turn? Because there's been a lot of sort of frustration, hasn't there, in the gold and silver space that you know everybody kind of thinks it should be really performing well in this environment, but it kind of hasn't been able to do that. So are we finally past that or or are there challenges? Look, I think so. Until uh, two months ago, silver was having its worst year in 30 years in terms of year-to-date performance. Uh, the rate of change from ultra easy to hawkish has been more severe than we've seen in any of the last, uh, you know, call it 30 plus years. Um, so while we're seeing inflation as a problem uh, and which questions the underperformance of precious metals, on the other side, we're also seeing a Federal Reserve that is committed to uh, to reducing the inflation problem. And so uh, it is it is interesting, um, you know, how gold and silver have uh, behaved. I think silver as a risky asset has behaved much more poorly than gold. If you look at gold relative to global bonds that have been collapsing, gold has actually held its ground very well. You look at gold relative to tips, treasury, um, uh, inflation protected uh, securities, uh, which also collapse. And you think about that, Maggie, tips are designed to protect you against inflation. Mm -hmm. And that security itself completely collapse as we've seen inflation rise. Um, and uh, even things like the Japanese yen, the Japanese yen and gold were actually uh, had a very strong correlation. I'm referring to gold versus the dollar and the Japanese yen versus the dollar. Uh, those two also had a strong correlation and now we're seeing uh, a break of those. And so there is a sense of accumulation of the asset over time while uh, the pessimism in terms of, uh, I would say, most of the sentiment in precious metals has been uh, very bad. Um, and Wall Street Journal put out a, um, a cover of their, of their newspaper the other day saying that gold lost its, its reserve status and so forth. And so certainly we're seeing a, a big change here. And the crypto market, which is stole gold's lunch and precious metals lunch, 
in the past is is definitely in a very different place than it was one or two years ago. So mm-hmm. I'm really thinking that um, gold is going to play a role here in terms of uh, d- doing what it did in the 70s, which was playing a defensive role as an asset uh, and, and being a larger percentage of portfolios uh, than it is today. So today, most portfolios are still very long equities and bonds. Um, you know, I don't think that that's going to be the case in the next 10 years. I think it's going to be a mix. Uh, and I think gold is going to p- play a big role into becoming more of a, a defensive uh, uh, aspect of, of any portfolios that we see, especially from large capital allocators. And central banks will be forced to likely buy gold in order to improve the quality of their inter- international reserves, um, which I think is going to also be a, a big part of all this. Yeah, that that's very interesting. Certainly, everyone's kind of rethinking the 60-40 that just blew up in everyone's face this year. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's coming at a time when people are taking a a kind of fresh look at how they should position. King Louie on YouTube asking, do you think gold and silver would act as a hedge if there was a currency problem in China? Um, I would think so. I think um, especially, you know, what we like to do is, you know, there are times when gold can actually uh, sell off in, in sort of that risk-off environment where you have equity markets declining along with the CNH devaluing relative to the dollar, where you have this kind of strong dollar situation. Uh, we're not dollar bears. I mean, we're long gold and tangible assets, uh, but we think it's important to be long those assets relative to the most overvalued currencies in the world. So if you're long the miners, if you're long precious metals in general, and you also have shorts in the Hong Kong dollar and and, and the Chinese yuan, essentially or mathematically, you are long gold relative to those currencies. I think those are the most attractive ways of 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 doing this. Um, I have to ask you about U.S. stocks before we before we go, um, because all of this sounds like you're setting up a picture where you're pretty bearish about the prospect for U.S. equities. Is that across the board, or is that concentrated in the sort of mega cap and the, and some of the tech names? Um, I think it, it it changed over time. I think back in 2021, we were very bearish, uh, especially with. Uh, software stocks. Um, I wish I would have shorted some of the crypto things. Um, I, I didn't do enough. Um, I think this year we came in very focused on mega caps. Uh, we thought mega caps were going to underperform. I think we've seen pockets of that already happening. Um, and you're asking the question that is the most important one, what's next? I think Apple is one example of a company from the mega cap side that has been benefiting tremendously from cheap labor and also a, a, a more globalized environment, which I don't believe we're entering in the next five to 10 years. And so if, if you ever want to express the deglobalization side of, of things, I think you want to be short Apple. Uh, Microsoft is another example of that as well in terms of valuations, very similar to what we saw back in the tech bubble uh, peak. Um, and so there's a lot of mega cap names that remain very overvalued relative to the overall markets. Um, I think consumer discretionary continues to be very interesting as a short. And more importantly, I think corporate bonds um, are also very attractive as a, as a short because you have credit spreads being very low at a time when NASDAQ is already down close to 30 plus percent. Uh, and I've never seen a time when uh, you have credit spreads, at, you know, call it sub 2% uh, relative to the treasury yields um, and in a time when NASDAQ is down 30 plus percent. So I think there's a, a potential, now again, probability terms, mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a probability uh, that is higher than expected uh, that credit spreads could actually spike 
as, as we see things develop. So I'm bearish in equity markets in the U.S. I've been bearish for a while, and I hedged that by being long um, commodities in general and tangible assets. And that basket of commodities, it changes over time. And mm. now I think it's time to be allocating more into metals because um, it's, they have really lagged, especially the precious metals have really, really lagged energy, agricultural commodities, and others. Fascinating stuff, Tavi. My takeaway from this is that I, th- I it seems like you think the market is, is being a little bit complacent about the risks out there. Well, I don't think we've seen, I think we've seen a duration type of repricing where interest rates went higher in the 10-year yields and, and Fed funds rate and markets have got a little ahead of themselves. And then we saw a sell-off in, in overall markets. Um, but I don't think we've seen yet that contraction of earnings being reflected in markets. I don't think we've seen a contraction of cash flows and so forth being reflected in prices. And so, you know, I'm I'm skeptical about that. And I think there's a lot of companies that still trading at very hefty multiples, historically speaking, relative to their own history, in fact. Um, and and I don't think they deserve that. And so mm-hmm. I have issues with with that in general. I think there are parts of the market that are cheap, um, you know, and most of them are in natural resources. I'm very, very deep into mining in general because that's where our niche has been now. Uh, but I think there are you know, places to invest in emerging markets. Um, and I think there are places to invest in even uh, in even other parts of the of the commodities uh, cycle as well. Tavi, fantastic stuff. We, we, we hit a lot. We could keep going, but we're out of time. But please come back again. Re- really fascinating thesis. And it sounds like we need to all fasten our seatbelts. It's going to be a little bit rocky, uh, especially if you still have a lot of exposure or long U.S. equities. So be careful out there. Yeah, it's my view. Thank you for having me. Tavi, great stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for joining. We'll be back again tomorrow, same time with Tony Greer. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.